We started in hard times to bring us all in. Welcome to Public Power Underground, Public Power's premier infotainment program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. I'm the voice of the underground, Northwest Public Power's Ron Burgundy, today's co-host and the economic development manager for Klatskin IPUD, Brian Fawcett. I'm the creative director of Public Power Underground and the manager of Klatskin IPUD's power department, Paul Dockery. I'm Lucie Gillen, the data specialist for Klatskin IPUD and the producer for today's episode of Public Power Underground. And this is Crystal Ball, the Leslie Nope of Public Power and Public Power Underground's Deputy Director of Parks and Rec, BPA's former Fish and Wildlife Program uh, Director Emeritus, and the future Deputy Director of PNAC and an honorary member of the power department. Welcome. This is an honorary membership. Brian left us, so he's like an old member of the power department. Luigi and I are the current <laughs> members. You join. You join the great Karen Heim, the Jamie Tart of Public Power, as honorary members of the power department. This is a great honor. I hope you appreciate it, Crystal. Oh, I am so honored to be here um, as a co-host. I've been an interviewed, yes. but... Uh, thank you. I'm just so excited to do this, Paul. Me too. So excited. Uh, we're going to have to dig into uh, Karen's new title that I hadn't heard, the Jamie Tart of Public Power Underground. But That's because another Brian time. doesn't actually listen to any episodes he's not actually in, so he didn't know that. <laughs> I feel like we, it's well-founded that she is the Jamie Tart of Public Power. On I, I missed that one. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, it's That's perfect for fascinating. her. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I'm I listened at one and a half X, as uh, I've mentioned a few times. And it was so. probably in one of the live episodes at the start of this season. And they they were easy to like miss because it, there's a lot of background in a live episode. Oh, yeah, I, I shouldn't have missed it, so I apologize. Okay. But we'll we'll move on. We're also rejoined by Jason Fordney, the editor of California Energy Markets, a journalist and off-grid electric enthusiast, and today's podcast ambassador from News Data. Great to have you back, Jason. Thank you, Brian. Great to be here. Hi, Paul. Hi, Crystal. Luigi. Hey, Jason. Hello. This is going to be a fun... We got a good group today. Fun group. It's always a fun group, though, right? Yeah. We do a good job. Yeah. We do a good job of good content here. Mm-hmm. You do. I, uh, I apologize for my background. It's a little bleak. I have a new office here. It's, it's minimalist, so I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> is that currently being powered off-grid, or is this office somewhere with stable grid power from a reliable electric utility? Uh, well, it's PG&E, oh. so I don't oh. want to say, <laughs> but in Nevada City, so yeah, this is down, down in the city, yep, so utility, grid connection and everything, although my phone is out today for some reason. Yeah, okay. That's, that's life in North right. All right, this is season three, episode 10, or 11, depending on how you count the bonus episode, Infrastructure Week. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. Take it away, Paul. Okay. Uh, I sometimes fumble these, and I'm sorry for the times I fumble. We're going for it, okay? The presenting sponsor of today's episode is Efficiency Services Group. The folks at ESG are electric utility enthusiasts like us, and we appreciate their help in making this show possible. ESG specializes in working with electric utilities to develop real solutions to meet their specific needs. What kind of solutions, you might ask? How about direct install programs? We do that, don't we, Brian? They do that great work for us. Design and implementation of your energy efficiency program. We had one. They probably helped us work it a little bit, though, didn't they, Brian? 
They yeah. did. Yeah, they, they've uh, fine-tuned it and made it a lot more efficient, which makes sense with efficiency services. That's way more. That's good. Good work there. Income qualified programs, we have one of those. I don't know. They help us with that, I think, too. Yeah? They yeah, do. Yep. Great. And even utility staff training by the legend himself, Mark Gosviner. As a bonus, the good folks at ESG are well-versed in BPA and California public benefit programs. Uh, so Jason, if you're looking for a true utility partner to help with the California public benefit program, or if you know a utility that wants some help with that, let them know. Uh, to help with programs okay. like these and more, learn about ESG Story at efficiencyservicesgroup.com. That's efficiencyservicesgroup.com. They're returning sponsor Public Power Underground and their electric utility enthusiasts like us. Brian, don't you think that we need, need like the forward slash, like the slash underground so that they know that you got, that had, were how you learned about it? That's a thing, right? Right. Either that or like a bit.ly link or something. Ooh, a bit.ly that, link? That way we can track that it came from us. Okay, so here's the thing. If you're going to communicate with anyone from ESG for any reason and you heard this promo, you need to include in your email to someone from ESG that you heard about them from Public Power Underground. Even if, let's be honest, you probably have a long-standing relationship. They're, uh, they're a public power uh, you know, company in the region you're very familiar with. But if you communicate with be like, hey, I heard you on Public Power Underground. Give us some, give us some love. It's good stuff. Perfect. Thanks. Yep. Thanks, Paul. And uh, special thanks to ESG from me directly. They have made my life a whole heck of a lot easier, and it's been a huge benefit to our customers. So really, really happy to be a partner Got the with testimonial them. for free. That wasn't even That's in the right. script. <laughs> All right. On today's show, we're getting an update on Northwest Power Markets on Aaron Reports with Crystal Reporting. Paul talks to Jurgen Pilot from the National Offshore Wind Research and Development Consortium. Kurt Miller returns to talk about hydropower and build back better. Matt Shretnik and Paul interview Michelle, Michelle Maneri, the BPA Chief Financial Officer on assignment to the Department of Energy about infrastructure investment and jobs act, about the infrastructure investment and jobs acts. We cover more public power and public power adjacent news in public power desktop. And lastly, we TLDR through some headlines we didn't get to on public power desktop in a segment we're calling Keep It Short this week. We're changing that name a lot. How are we feeling about Keep It Short? Crystal, do you like Keep It Short? <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> I kind of liked phase to ground or, you know, there were some clever ones before. Why Why the change? But we just got to find the right one. We got to find oh. the right one. I think. Okay, keep it short. Keep it short is the next iteration. I, Luigi seemed to like short to ground more. Luigi, what, you Ooh. like short to ground more than yeah, keep like it short? Thing. Yeah, I like short to ground. Yeah, it's a better name. I'm still, I'm on, I think we can find a good one. Short to ground may end up, we just may end up where we started all this. <laughs> I'm leaning towards short to ground as well. As an engineer, that one just kind of hits, hits it right, doesn't it? Hits it right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's energetic. It's energetic. Ah, oh. <laughs> oh, we're carrying a lot of current. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's a theme. <laughs> okay. All right. We're starting this week, like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports with Crystal Reporting. This is Aaron Reports with Crystal Reporting, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest market indicators for November 29th, 2021. I'm Crystal Ball, and I've got your market update for the week. October through September flows at the Dalles for water year 2022 are currently forecast to be 95% of normal, and April to September is at 95%. 
Outflow at the Dow's peaked over the past week at 165.3 KCFS on November 24th at 1900 hours. Day-ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday, November 28th, was 1,283, and peak outflow this past week happened November 24th at 1,800 hours when it reached 162.4 kcfs. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery November 29th is at $34, with gas at $4.47 per mmbtu, translating to a spark spread of $2.68 and a heat rate of 7,600. In term markets, December delivery at Mid-Sea is now at $67.50 per megawatt hour. Mid-Sea power for January 2022 is at $73, down from $79.45 a week ago. January gas at Sumas is trading at $6.01, translating to a heat rate of 12100 It's ski season, so we're swapping out fish counts for snow depth. We use Ansergy's aggregation of basin data to check on snow in the region. The snow water equivalent for BC Hydro Generation Basin is 85% of normal. For mid-sea, 72% of normal. And aggregating all the snow in the Columbia River Basin that'll flow through Bonneville Dam, they estimate there is 46% of normal snow blanket. For friends of the underground who like to ski or snowboard, pray for snow! <laughs> in the Slice Mountains, Whistler is currently open but is experiencing light rain. Revelstoke is open only for the weekends, and Red Mountain's opening is planned for December 11th. Spending a beat at Bonneville's Balancing Authority, peak load this past week was 8,119 on November 24th at 7.55 a.m. During load's peak, hydro generation was at 10,258. Wind gen was at 754. Conventional units were at 1,255, and nuclear was 1,164, all units in megawatts. And so for the August, September, October, October period sits at negative 0.7 oceanic Nino index. The multivariant ENSO index for September, October is negative 1.47. And the SST consolidated Nino forecast indicates that we're likely to remain in La Nina through spring 2022. This week in NOAA climate forecast, the 6 to 10 outlook has temp above normal for the region. Precipitation is also expected to be above normal. Their 30-day and 90-day reports indicate temperatures below normal and a chance of above average precipitation. Like I said, pray for snow! Special thanks to Answer G for letting us use their dashboards and for Aaron Reports and to Luigi for collecting and compiling the data. That's all we've got for this update. Thanks for the report, Crystal. You nailed that for your first time. I, I'm impressed. Phew. Well done. Well done. So where, I think, Crystal, you're a skier. Where do you ski? Uh, Everywhere? Close. Yeah. Everywhere? <laughs> Mount Hood. Mount Hood Meadows, Timberline. Okay. Um, That's not in the yeah. Slice Mountains, so you're probably not going to get a report from us on the snow oh, conditions. because Spring break, Whistler, Slice there Mountains. There you go. That's the Slice Heck Mountains. Yeah. That's what we care about. Yep. <laughs> Is there any good skiing in the Sierra Nevada, Jason? Or Crystal, if you're our ski expert, is there some, is there any oh, yeah. um, hydro generation benefit from reporting on the Sierra Nevadas? Um, there's plenty of skiing up, you know, Donner Pass. Uh, yeah, lots of, lots of skiing. Um, but I have not been up there yet to ski. Maybe I should start. You guys are getting, getting me motivated. I mean, if right. you're a skateboarder, it seems like snowboarding would be maybe something you'd be interested in. 
I just need another sport where I can maybe get hurt, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I assume that you get nice Spend health money. insurance from news data. If not, Mark Orenshaw, <laughs> you should make sure your people have good health insurance. I'm just saying. Oh, it's good, so, yeah. Crystal, is there is one of those something we should add to this ski report for next episode in the Sierra Nevadas? Is there one of those that like you, you think of would be interesting for our listeners? I don't know skis. I don't know you, to go south. Are you are you happy with Revelstoke and uh, and Whistler and Red Mountain? Are those three good ones that you like? Those are three good ones. Okay, but I think you should maybe consider Western Washington or um, uh, yeah, like Crystal Mountain. I'm maybe not, I'm not doing anything in the Cascades. Is that in the Cascades? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. let's go. Let's go. Let's go east. Yeah, you gotta what go about, east. Uh, Schweitzer. Go east, young um, man. Haven't you been? Told? Yeah. Yeah. Schweitzer. Yeah. That sounds like a good name. Yeah, up near Spokane. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then we got to get, you know, the Snake River Basin, too. So. Is there some good skiing down there? Grand Teton, Jackson. See, yeah. I'm not a skier. Hey, McCall? I don't, I, don't know. Is, I don't know much about skiing, but McCall is like... Yeah, Brendridge. I think I said that okay, right. We're gonna, I mean, Focus Basin in Boise. You getting all this, Luigi? You getting this? We're going to update <laughs> it. You got it? <laughs> Yeah. Luckily, it's recorded. Yeah. She'll get it the second time. Right. Right. You're muted, Luigi. I, I got I it. To, there you go. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> unmuted for We got it. Okay. Thank you. It's fun. It's great. All right. Next up is our weekly walk through public power and public power adjacent news in a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. Take it away, Jason. Okay. Uh, Give, fed- wait, Brian, you got to call out the typewriter. Come on. We, I, need, yeah. we, we got we to insert this in the script. Bad timing I, I mean, there. Come on, host. Voice of the Undergrad. Take it away, Jason. Luigi, let's get some typewriter. Okay, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission recently kicked off a new transmission planning initiative along with states, including those in the West, where it's recognized that increased regional coordination will be needed to integrate renewables and meet rising demand for electricity. The first meeting between FERC and state representatives from the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners took place in Louisville, Kentucky, in conjunction with the Nehruk annual meeting. The 10-member panel uh, is dubbed the Joint Federal-State Task Force on Electric Transmission. FERC Chairman Richard Glick at the meeting said that the federal government and states need to work together as FERC moves ahead with a new rulemaking on transmission planning on cost and cost allocation. Glick said that states will have an opportunity to guide the FERC rulemaking process. Uh, California Public Utilities Commission member Clifford Rextoffen said transmission planning needs to be enhanced to meet the Golden State's decarbonization goals and that there's an increasing recognition that more regional collaboration is needed. While Idaho Public Utilities Commission member Christine Raper urged a focus on reliability during the, the rulemaking. Raper said that while Idaho does not have a renewables portfolio standard, she realizes that across the West, fossil units are being retired and replaced with wind and solar resources that will need new transmission. Yeah, so to read more, we can find this in California Energy Markets. This is what we found this via our article you covered, right, Jason? Yep. Um, mm-hmm. November, 9th, November 19th issue. Um, this is, uh, the national association of regulatory utility commissioners. Is there an avenue here for public power to get involved? Um, other than just generic public comments, any, any insight there? That's a good question. You know, I assume that, uh, there's 
Each region has two representatives. Like I said, uh, Christine Raper from Idaho and Clifford Rextoffen from California. I assume that they would be open to communications on these issues. Um, I don't know if there's a direct public power representative, uh, but um, I, I do seem to remember some discussion. Uh, there's a, an archive of this meeting on YouTube, if anyone's interested, uh, where they probably did discuss public power being involved. Okay. We like to be involved. All right. All right, Luigi. How about that typewriter? And then Paul's up. Jurgen Pilot, a program manager at the National Offshore Wind Research and Development Consortium, otherwise known as The Consortium, and I recorded an informative conversation about the differences between offshore wind projects on the East Coast versus the West Coast, um, big ships needed for the construction of these things, and underwater trenching for collection systems. Hey, Jurgen, welcome to Public Power Underground. Hello, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have someone from the National Offshore Wind Research Development Consortium here. Great name. It's a mouthful, isn't it? It's a mouthful. I like I like the consortium. I like to go for the underground for our podcast, and I'm going to just refer to you as the consortium. They sound kind of equally sinister, I'd say. Equally sinister. I have a bunch of questions about offshore wind. Are you ready to get into it? Ready as I'll ever be. Okay, I'm going to put us on the clock. We have seven minutes, okay? Are you ready for the clock to start? Shoot. Oh, go. Okay. Uh, we recently had a friend of the underground who I think you know as well from Avangard, Holly Carius, and she mentioned that structures for wind turbines on the East Coast will be different from those on the West Coast. Remind us why. Yeah, so the biggest difference uh, is due to water depth. So on the East Coast, the exception being the Gulf of Maine, uh, site depths are somewhere in like the 30 to 60 meter range. That's like 100 to 200 feet. Thank you for converting. Yep, and that's because the continental shelf sits further offshore. Uh, so here, bottom fixed foundations are going to be most cost effective. That's things like gravity base, uh, monopile, or lattice jacket support structures. Uh, the bottom fixed foundations, they're, they're simpler, they're more common globally. They're generally much more mature technologies, uh, but they're okay. only cost effective to 50 or 60 meters, and some okay. would be less. So does that mean if you have a greater depth of sea that the structures are going to be more expensive? They will be more expensive, okay. uh, and they're going to have to be floating. So Floating. Yes. So we're going to float some we're going to float some wind turbines. We are indeed. So so on the west coast, once you get a few miles offshore, you know, you're going to hit depths of up to 1300 meters or, or more. So that's 4000 feet. Um, fixed foundations don't really cut it there. Um, so we're going to have to make use of things like buoyant moored foundations, like uh, like semi-subs, spar buoy type structures or tension lake platforms. Okay, so you are on the consortium seems to be a lot on the east coast because that's probably the most cost effective. Um, but it's you're from Maine, and you said that on the Maine coast that the, the ocean depths are similar to what we'll experience on the West Coast. Is there some research happening there that will make it more cost effective when it gets to the West Coast? There absolutely is. So Maine, although it's, the Gulf of Maine is not nearly as deep as the West Coast, uh, the depths are still kind of beyond that break-even point for fixed okay. platform economics. Uh, so the University of Maine in particular has been doing a lot of great work. Uh, we've got a project that we're sponsoring with them. Uh, investigating, they've got uh, a semi-sub type platform that they've been working on for many years now, and it's semi-sub, uh, semi-submerged, submerged, yeah, submersible structure. Yep. Nice. Nice. Yep. And uh, so that's you have a, you're, you got like a buoy sitting out there that's kind of semi-submerged, and it just moves with the wind. So when the wind comes stronger, you just push it over more. 
yeah, so they actually stay pretty much completely fixed. They're moored to be stationary, and then the, the turbine will yaw into the direction of the wind. Okay, I love all of these terms. I can tell you're from Maine Maritime Academy. You have all of the maritime terms. Uh, so follow-up. Okay, so it's going to take ships, as I understand it, to get these turbines built. And I remember, I think it was Dominion that spoke to they want to have their own ship. Um, can you talk about ships and the need for ships and what's going on with ships? Yeah, so you mentioned Dominion. They are currently the only ones who are building their own U.S.-flagged uh, domestic installation vessel called the Charybdis. Um, but vessels are huge. Um, there's only so many vessels globally that are capable of supporting the current generation of offshore wind turbines when it comes to actually erecting them at sea. I assume you know the number. How many are there globally? I do not know the number. Globally. I know, but, but there's, a, there's a caveat to that that you got to know. Uh, we have what's called the Jones Act, which is uh, you know federal regulation that mandates that any components or equipment marshaled from a U.S. port to an install site offshore has to be transported by a U.S. flagged vessel. Uh, so for that reason, we can't build new offshore wind support vessels in Korea at a deep discount. And similarly, we can't borrow vessels from Europe or Asia with the expectation that we can operate them in the same way. So you uh, got, Dominion's got to do this. They got, we have to have some U.S. vessels is what you're saying. So we're going to have a balance because there is a workaround where you take a foreign flagged installation vessel and you basically use what's called feeder vessels or feeder barges to ship components basically out to the installation site uh, okay. where that program can then pick them and, and put them on the platform. But that is not how it's traditionally been done in Europe. And therefore, we're kind of pioneering new methods uh, with that uh, strategy or building our own as, as uh, Dominion and I believe uh, Aneti is, is another company that's looking to do the same. Okay, so the consortium is helping us pioneer new methods. Well done. Good pitch for the consortium. Yeah, I assume right. I'm just going to give the consortium credit. It's probably cool. you know, other people, but... We'll get to Dominion, but uh, yeah, we're, we'll we're take some of the You're doing the research, though, right? I mean, you're helping with the research and development for these new techniques. We, we absolutely are. Okay, we got two minutes left. These are really rapid fire. I expect that part of the benefits of having wind offshore, some of the benefits, is higher capacity factors and getting a more effective load carrying capability out of these turbines. Is that one of the benefits? It definitely is. So, new offshore wind projects, they have capacity factors of like 50 to 60% which is super is impressive. Good? I oh, figure yeah. I, we, bet, we were building wind farms in like Oklahoma, Nebraska with like 60% capacity factors. Why is 50% better? Because uh, they're bigger? Because they're bigger cause, turbines. Because they're bigger turbines. And yeah, I would say that 60% is not representative of onshore wind on the whole. Uh, land-based projects typically average closer to 40%. Still? I mean... Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel really good about uh, some of the projects that we built in Nebraska and Oklahoma. Good job, Josh. Okay. How big are these turbines? So they're bigger. How much bigger? Megawatts? Yeah, they're, they're some British bigger than too. So this is going to be out of date in like six months. But uh, okay. <laughs> we've got three big uh, players in the offshore wind uh, OEM games. So that's Siemens, GE, and Vestas. All three of these now have offerings in the 14 to 15 megawatt range. Whoa. Uh, so they dwarf anything landside because the average nameplate of an onshore turbine installed in 2020 was like 2.75 megawatts. So we're talking five and a half times bigger than that. Um, and how talk, tall? Like how tall are we talking? So, so 250 to 280 meters in height. So that's 820 to 918 feet. Um, okay. And the look diameters at that 15 megawatt range is, is 220 meters. So 720 feet. Wow. 
That is amazing. Okay, last thing. We got one minute left. What are the substations and collections going to look like to get this electricity from uh, these 14, 15 megawatt turbines onto shore? What's that going to look like? Yeah, so basically most new projects plan to run an inter-array cable system at like 66 kV between the individual turbines and an offshore substation. Uh, that offshore substation will step up to the interconnection voltage, and a subsea export cable will then deliver power to an onshore POI. Subsor- uh, subsea export cable. The, the substation is above water. It's going to float. It, uh, so it's probably going to be on a fixed platform unless fixed platform. it's on the East Coast. coast case, maybe, uh, yeah, but, on the East Coast. Uh, Yep, and then it will. You'll have a transformer there, and then you'll run it. Uh, basically, you'll trench that cable on the seafloor, and then it will be shielded with some kind of a rock cover on its route. Oh, to so there's going to be some sort of cover over this deep sea ca- subsea cable, and it is. It's not just going to lay on the seafloor; it's going to actually be trenched in. It is. It is trenched. Yes. Um, okay. And then there's a, then there's a rock cover to prevent scour and erosion. Um, okay. I should mention I, that's an AC system. We are also looking at HVDC for offshore wind. It's been done in Europe. Um, and it's, it's being increasingly utilized as, as farms move further from shore. Um, so there are a couple of projects in the U.S. that are looking at uh, HVDC systems uh, for their genti. Wow. So is there a break-even point on how far out you go for HVDC to break even on a cost-effectiveness? Is there like a distance there for economics? Uh, there is, but I'm not sure that that's an established you know, mileage or anything like that that I could, I could give you offhand. But oh, there's there certainly been, are there is a break even point. Yeah, this has been awesome. Last thing, I didn't I did not prep you for this. On the West Coast, is this going to have NIMBY issues? Are they gonna be something these are very tall structures? Are they we gonna be able to see them from shore? Is that gonna be an issue? Is it an oh, issue? Oh, the, the West Coast? Coast, of course you will. Of course you will. <laughs> yeah, no, Do you it, expect it, it in California before the Pacific Northwest? Is that where the first market on the West Coast is gonna be? That seems to be the trend, although it's it's too soon to say. Um, I, I think you can't get away from the NIMBY issues. Um, it's it's like any you know large infrastructure project; it, it has its issues. Um, but uh, hopefully, you know we're we're solving a lot of the problems uh, that people might complain about. You know, in five years on the West Coast, here in the next two or three. So. Yep, absolutely. Great to have you on, Jurgen. You, we're just a little bit over on the time, but incredibly great conversation. Really great, great value, great informer information. Thank you to the consortium for letting you come on. Well done. Of course. Thank you so much, Paul. Yep. Now back to the underground for news. You're going to answer a bunch of questions. I still have a lot more. Um, after recording, I convinced him to co-interview with me the next time we want to talk to an industri- industry expert about offshore wind because sometimes you do need somebody with a little bit more in, you know, insight into an industry to ask a little bit better questions. It was still a great conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, Jurgen can be found on Twitter at Jurgen underscore pilot. Um, Jurgen is spelled with a U and an E. Um, and another, uh, let's just be honest. I'm going to put it in the show notes. I, I'm not going to spell the whole thing out, right? It's, but he's on Twitter. You can ask him any more questions. I was his first follower on Twitter. Um, and I think you all should too. He's great. He's great. You're going to love the interview. It's great. You already love the interview? I guess it's kind of hard because I'm going to insert, like, it's where are we in, in the whole, what is time? <laughs> <laughs> also, a good follow on Twitter is at a power manager. It's a really good insight into uh, into Paul. Yeah, a lot of times you can see what he likes or comments on, and it really just makes my day when I'm looking through Twitter because it's so much good stuff. There's like a lot of dad jokes in there, um, and and oh, energy yeah. jokes, and then a lot of just Shay Serrano retweets. 
That and Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso. tweets. It's, I mean, it really is. It's all gold. It's just all over the place. It's all over the place. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot of good stuff. All right, Luigi. Uh, another typewriter clip, and then Crystal's up. In Boulder, Colorado, Byron Kamenek's 24-acre family farm used to grow only alfalfa and hay. In an effort to turn a profit, they've turned the farm agro agrivoltaic, growing a variety of crops under the 3,200 solar panels installed at the site. The PV panels are installed higher than normal at carefully measured heights that allows an optimal amount of sun to reach the crops, as well as laborers and equipment access. The panel's presence has been found to increase crop productivity and decrease water use, while the evaporative cooling effect of the crops decreases the temperature of the panels, which can increase generation by as much as 2%. This innovative farming method provides hope that some of the opposition to solar PV projects can be quelled by maintaining or even improving agricultural practices while helping to transition to a clean grid. For more information, see Andy Corbley's full story at goodnewsnetwork.org. Special thanks to the great Ian Bledsoe, Genesis Apprentices, for finding and summarizing the article. And also... I love the synergy. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. No, no, I I just wanted to point out, Crystal Ball also knows this was covered in NPR. So if you just uh, also Google Byron's name, you can get a great NPR article. I'll put both of them in the show notes. Um, But this is a really cool concept and uh, interesting. Go ahead, Brian. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, I was I was going to say the same thing. Cool concept, great synergy. Wish we had enough sun in our area to to make this more of a reality. We might eventually get there. I don't know if that'd be a positive or a negative thing, but either way, uh, I love the idea. Well, I love that I got to read this one, especially after hearing about it and on NPR. I was really fascinated by this concept because solar panels just haven't worked with agriculture before. But here's somebody really doing it in Boulder, and I hope he becomes an example for so many others. Yeah, reportedly you use 50% less water. He's using 50% less water um, because of the, the the shade that comes over the ground. Jason, have you done any articles on this in, in California energy markets? Have you seen this before? I have not, no. It looks really interesting, though. Yeah, there was, uh, in the NPR article, it was there was an expert uh, about agrivoltaics that got quoted, and I can't scan it fast enough but to find his actual name, but... Uh, it's a really interesting article. There seems to be, it's a niche right now, but the hope is that, you know, the niche can grow into something a little bit more uh, prevalent, maybe with some, you know, increased grant funding from things like an investment, an infrastructure investment and jobs act. I don't know. I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a reach. Looks looks (laughs) like something could be good for California too, because we have a lot of agriculture and a lot of sun. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, problems with water. Oh, yes. 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 It's getting a little better, but yep. Yeah. A win all the way around. Exactly. Mm-hmm. All right, Luigi, hit that typewriter, and then uh, Jason, I think you're up next. Okay, a grant was awarded to the Los Angeles Department of Transportation to fund a solar-powered and storage microgrid to charge its growing electric bus fleet. The microgrid will produce 7.5 megawatts of energy. It will also help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, lower the Department of Transportation's electricity costs, 
and provide emergency backup power that can be used in the event of an outage. According to the department's general manager, Salida Reynolds, persistent investment and urgent action are required to meet the department's climate and sustainability goals, and the grant provides essential support as it moves closer to its goal of a fully electric bus fleet. If you'd like to read more about this interesting topic, you can visit California Energy Market's website where you, where you will find the article, Microgrid Grant Keeps the Wheels on LADOT Buses Going Round and Round, written by Linda Daly-Paulson. Thanks to today's producer, Luigi, for summarizing the article. Nicely done. Good job, Luigi. Good job. Good article, too. Good article, too, Linda. Well done. Mm-hmm. All the way around. She'll like to hear that, yeah. All right, uh, Luigi, one more typewriter, and then, Paul, you're up with uh, some big-time budget bill news. Budget bill news. The House passed a 10-year, $1.75 trillion budget bill on November 19th that would fund Biden administration's climate, health, education, and housing programs, including $555 billion in tax changes and spending aimed at lowering greenhouse gas emissions. The bill, H.R. 5376, known as the Build Back Better Act, now goes to the Senate. An Adramus champion and best friend of the underground, Kurt Miller, asked to join the underground to talk a little about hydropower in the Build Back Better Act, specifically an investment tax credit for enhancements to hydro projects that was once in the bill, but's gotten carved out. He'd like us to call our representatives to see if it can get put back in. For more, here's Kurt Miller, Northwest River Partners Executive Director. Oh, hey there. Uh, You just happened to catch me at home. Uh, This is my casual wear in my home office. You might have noticed the belt, uh, the Anadromous Champion belt for our Public Power Underground. Uh, still happy to, to be wearing it. And again, thanks to the underground is the best friend of the underground. I'm honored to be here today. Uh, so I really appreciate this opportunity on PPU Infrastructure Week to talk about uh, a really important hydropower initiative. Um, as you know, we spend a lot of time out there um, on different issues locally, but this is a national issue. And Northwest River Partners over the last, um, I guess since June, we've really have tried to step up our hydropower government affairs work. And so we've been working really closely with the National Hydropower Association um, on some of the initiatives that are that they're working on. And one of the really big ones is a hydropower tax incentive. Um, now that, uh, that tax incentive uh, initially was under the 21st Century Dams Act that was introduced by uh, Senator Cantwell from Washington and Senator Mikowski from Alaska. And uh, unfortunately, as the size of the reconciliation bill or the Build Back Better bill, uh, whatever you'd like to call it, has decreased in size, hydropower kind of got booted out of that. And we're really concerned about that because obviously for uh, us in the Northwest, we know that the Pacific Northwest produces 40% of the entire nation's hydropower. So a tax incentive for hydropower is really important for this region. And um, unfortunately, again, during that paring down process, it's kind of gotten booted out. But there's still, I think, um, in the neighborhood of, uh, I don't know, I think it's like $320 billion set aside for clean energy. And so there is money there. Uh, and I think it's just a matter of reassessing where that money goes. And so uh, hydropower certainly, especially for the Northwest, is really important. And so we have been working um, with uh, offices among the Northwest delegation and talking to the staffers, uh, really advocating the importance of getting a hydropower tax credit. It would be a 30% tax incentive 
for uh, like investor-owned utilities or for publicly owned utilities, it would be a direct tax payment, which is really important so that uh, public utilities could benefit from it as well. But it's anyone who owns and operates a hydropower system would be eligible for it. Um, so right now, our understanding is it really is at the doorstep of Senator Wyden of Oregon, and uh, he's the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. And so uh, we've really been encouraging our members to reach out to Senator Wyden's office. Uh, he has come out previously in support of the measure, but more recently, um, it's been a little bit more quiet there. And so we just want to give him as much uh, encouragement to get this in for the region, for our clean energy goals, uh, to fight climate change as possible. So anyway, um, uh, do your best out there. Make sure you're reaching out to Senator Wyden's office. And uh, we're excited to be a, a part of this and trying to help it go forward. Okay, so quick follow-up question, Kurt, uh, from from the, I guess, the, uh, the peanut gallery. There's, that's the word I was looking for. Okay, so it's Build Back Better. There was a provision. It got taken out, and it's a tax credit, an investment tax right. credit for 30% of any enhancements to hydropower projects. Yeah, Is that I, what I think, I'm understanding? I, I think for, um, there's, some, there's some nuances in there. Um, and yeah, of course. <laughs> but yes, I th you, you basically nailed it, right? Is you know, so okay, so get, and it sounds like, yeah, so it sounds like for an investor-owned utility that can be, if you're taxable, you can get a tax credit. But you mentioned in there, there is also some mechanisms. So if you're uh, consumer-owned and are not taxable, that there is a conversion of that. So it could be a direct yes. payment. Is that also what I understand? Yeah, yeah no, it's, okay. so it's really significant. Now, I do want to be clear and completely candid that, you know, for like BPA and for customers who buy their electricity from BPA, this isn't going to lower costs for them, as I understand it, it's, it doesn't apply to it's, federal government. But if you were like, okay. if you own your own dam, as uh, a lot of our members do, or own a part of a dam or own their own dam, then and they're a public power utility, they would be eligible for it. Um, and so, yep. you know, for us, you know, uh, with you know, wind is going to continue to receive tax, you know, tax incentives. Solar is going to be receiving tax incentives. Even nuclear is going to be receiving tax incentives. And so for us, where, again, hydro is so important in this region, it's just it seems so critical that hydropower gets to perform on equal footing there so that we can preserve our existing hydropower resources. Thank you very much. Thanks for hey, coming thanks on. thanks a lot. Back to the underground for news. All right, Luigi, you want to hit the typewriter? And then, Jason, you're up next. Controlled thermal resources began drilling the first two wells at the first facility to fully integrate geothermal energy production and lithium extraction. Lithium will be recovered from the brine that remains after geothermal energy is produced. Extraction advocates say it is a less expensive and more environmentally friendly alternative to traditional lithium production. Most of the initial 50 megawatts of baseload renewable power should be online by the end of 2023 and is sold to Imperial Irrigation District under a long-term PPA. General Motors, the first investor in the project, has rights to the lithium hydroxide produced by the first stage of the project, which is an estimated 20,000 tons per year starting in 2024. The full power capacity potential of the site is about 1,100 megawatts, with a lithium production capacity of roughly 300,000 metric tons per year. Expansion of both power and lithium production will be quote, staged to meet market demand, unquote, a spokesperson for the company said. 
For more information, see the story by Linda Daly Paulson in California Energy Markets at newsdata.com. Thanks to our staff writer, Genesis Apprentices and Power Analyst Ian Bledsoe for summarizing the article. Another win-win. I love it. Yeah, I tell you what, Linda and Ian, great, great, great reporting by Linda, great summarizing by Ian. This is great. Some really good articles. Awesome. So I have a question. Did you all know that lithium could be recovered from the brine? I had no idea. That's what I zero yeah, idea. That's what I no found idea. So interesting about this article is I had no idea that you could get lithium out of that. I just know lithium is bad. Um, to mine for, you know, there was an article in the uh, New York Times about the Congo, but man, if you can get lithium out of geothermal, we have lots of opportunity. Yeah, all I, yeah, I, was, ahead, I was gonna say, I'm, I'm with you on that. I don't understand the process for mining lithium, but I know it was not environmentally friendly. So this seems like uh, a great way to both generate power and mine some, some lithium. Yeah, I had to read this one closely when I was editing it just to sort of understand the process. It is fascinating. I don't know how they developed it, but glad to see some alternative methods for lithium extraction. As you said, Crystal, it's a very environmentally unfriendly process and becoming more of a topic with the electric EV battery uh, discussion and combined here with renewables too is awesome so hopefully see more of that yeah love to see uh gm as the uh the ones getting the rights to the lithium too so they can ramp up their ev production i'm really curious what the scale of twenty thousand tons per year like is this just a drop in the bucket or like i don't have a a mental framework for how big or small that is relative to how much we use but um Good regardless of some other method, especially if you're already extracting this brine to make power anyway. Yeah. Yeah. What do you- we should have put that in the story, actually. Maybe something for frame of reference. So. Ooh, something for Linda to follow up on. <laughs> yeah. 20,000 tons a year. It sounds like a lot. It's, it's really uh, 1,100 megawatts yeah. is pretty good baseload power. Um, and 300 right. metric, thousand metric tons is, uh, yeah, pretty. Seems, sounds impressive. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll uh, move on to the next one. So go ahead and hit that typewriter, and then Crystal's up. I love the typewriter. In dispatches from Energy Twitter, Twitter personality, assistant professor at Princeton University, and apparently a classmate of best friend of the underground, Humeyer Falkenberg at University, Jesse Jenkins did a full read of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and line-by-line documentation of the energy-related provisions in a handy Excel format. We will highlight two things. Division A, Title I, Subtitle D, Section 11401, called Grants for Charging and Fueling Infrastructure, establishes a charging and refueling grant program to be administered by DOT. It appropriates $2.5 billion for charging and fueling infrastructure grants with priority given to rural areas, low and moderate income neighborhoods, and communities with low ratios of private parking or high ratios of multi-unit dwellings. Eligible entities include a state or political subdivision of a state, a special purpose district, or public authority with transportation function, including a port authority. 
Secondly, Division D, Title I, Subtitle A, Section 40101, called Preventing Outages and Enhancing the Resilience of the Electric Grid, directs the Department of Energy to establish a grant program to support activities that reduce the likelihood and consequence of impacts to the electric grid due to extreme weather, wildfire, and natural disaster. It appropriates $5 billion. It provides grants to electric utilities, 30% of which must go to small utilities, selling less than four terawatt hours of electricity per year to enhance grid resilience. Things like installing microgrids, weatherization, undergrounding, monitoring, and vegetation management qualify. Small utilities are required to match 33% of funding. It's really outstanding work by Jesse Jenkins. Link to the tweet is in the show notes, and the tweet has a link to the spreadsheet. Or, Paul, we could just link to the spreadsheet. Not sure everybody wants to go through Twitter. Yeah, Luigi, hit on that uh, that Google Doc there in the tweet real quick. It'll it'll come up for those watching on YouTube. I uh, I think everybody, all friends of the underground, should be aware that Brian Fawcett is also a commissioner at a port, <laughs> the Port of Columbia County. So really, he is Commissioner Fawcett. We have not been using his correct title, and I apologize for that. I do like Voice of the Underground more than Commissioner Brian. But have you been the- talking to Mike Shepard? Is this where this came I mean, from? Mike Shepard uh, definitely always uses the honorific, which is is, is good of him, you know? <laughs> Makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yep. The Can we call him the commish? The commish, even better. I'll just have to roll with it. Like, I don't have anything for that. It sounds yeah, good. I think, I think what this <laughs> I means, am excited. Yeah, I think what this means is we're going to have to get some uh, electric vehicle charging at the port, Brian, don't you think? That was exactly where I was going to go with it. I think there are some opportunities. I'm excited to, uh, to maybe be a po- part of those opportunities from a couple different angles. So hopefully we can get a little bit of that money and uh, invest in infrastructure in our area. Yeah, and Brian, another topic that you and I often talk about is broadband. And I just want to say there's also some funds in here for broadband. And we didn't even talk yep. about it. We didn't even include it in summary. We need it. There's so much good stuff in, in this summary. Really well worked, by, good work by Jesse Jenkins that we couldn't even cover it all. And we skipped broadband just near and dear to our heart. Jason, how is your broadband service where you're at? Not great. Uh, we still have some growing pains where I live here in Nevada yeah, City. I, uh, I could use some better broadband at home for sure. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us could. But it's something we actually... Um, want to start exploring more more coverage. yeah, that would be really interesting. I think a lot of, (laughs) you know, uh, electric utilities have an interest in, like, what's the broadband service like? Economic development, Brian. I think broadband matters a lot to economic development, especially for, like, rural utilities. Yep, and it has been... uh, Obviously, something that is more of a focus after the pandemic, too, with the huge effects on folks working from home, kids going to school from home, that sort of thing. We've really seen that it's a weakness in a lot of rural areas. So excited to see that money coming in. Maybe we can look forward to an article in the future about the the uh, the amount of money for broadband. Yeah. Maybe in the next couple of weeks. Maybe we can cover like that. that. And Crystal, yeah. dear friend of oh, ours and great friend of the underground, Humira Falkenberg, was a, went to university with an assistant professor at, where, where is it? Where is the assistant professor? Like Princeton, right? Princeton. Yeah. Yeah, Princeton. Yeah. I know. Rubbing shoulders with greatness over here, Humira Falkenberg. <laughs> <laughs> it's great that she knows him so well. Yeah. 
And uh, we'll go to Luigi for the next uh, typewriter clip. And Paul. Okay. Included in Public Power Council's mini-packet last week was a great summary of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act regarding the boost to BPA's borrowing authority and Columbia River Treaty. I got super special dispensation directly from Scott Sims himself to be able to read Marty Canner's summary directly. So, Marty, if you're a friend of the underground, you get a special staff writer credential for this uh, summary and byline this week. Um, also, Scott Sims, thank you for allowing us this super special. It's special dispensation because on every one of these packets, it's marked confidential and got to get special permission to read it. Okay, so here it is. Quoting Marty. On November 15th, President Biden signed into law the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the $1.2 trillion bipartisan bill funding a variety of physical infrastructure investments. Including in the package is $10 million $10 billion increase in BPA's Treasury Borrowing Authority, the primary source of the agency's funding to meet its statutory responsibilities. The borrowing authority language gives BPA access to $6 billion immediately, with access to the remaining $4 billion delayed until 2028. The phased funding, as well as language requiring collaborative development of BPA's financial plan and active customer engagement, were PPC-crafted sideboards designed to ensure transparency and accountability. The infrastructure legislation also includes provisions intended to incentivize Canadian renegotiation of the Columbia River Treaty. With little progress to show after more than a decade of discussions, the Northwest Congressional Delegation is resolute that action is needed. The provisions of the infrastructure bill are meant to provide Canada with new encouragement to constructively engage in the process. Both efforts support... Uh, both efforts support among the Northwest Congressional Delegation, but special recognition go to Senators Maria Cantwell and Jim Risch for shepherding the measures through Congress, end quote. Thanks thanks again to Scott Sims for the permission to use the summary, Marty Canner for summarizing, and Karen Heim for publishing the mini packet, publisher of mini packets. To dive deeper into the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is Northwest icon Michelle Maneri. Michelle is Bonneville Power Administration's Chief Financial Officer on assignment to the Department of Energy as the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Energy Resilience Division in the Office of Electricity. Joining me to talk with Michelle is Matt Shretnick, eWeb's Power Planning Supervisor and Staff Counsel and Public Power Underground's Special Correspondent. Hi, Michelle. It's great to see you again. Welcome to Public Power Underground. Thank you, Matt. I, I'm a, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm I'm so happy that you are here to join us today. Do you, is it safe to say that you really have no idea what you're getting into, <laughs> Michelle? That is true, especially with you two. You can go anywhere. Yeah, we were talking about before we came on camera that this is actually the first time you yes. and I have spoken to each other. I have heard you many times. I've been in many public web webinars or workshops even in person where you've spoken. You and I have never had a conversation. This is a great Thank honor you, for Paul, me. Thank and you, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because um, I still get the phone calls. I've been about six months at DOE now and not Bonneville, and I still get the, nope, not me. <laughs> Don't talk to me. Talk to... Yeah, the exactly, funnest but, calls. Those are the best calls. You can be like, oh, oh, that's a that's really important question you have that someone exactly. else needs to answer. That me. Thank you. I'm just a concerned citizen now. I can all I hear is what you hear. Yeah, exactly. Man. Yeah, it's exactly. already been love it. Love it. All right. Um, 
I can't believe it's already been six months. So you've been on uh, diving in. You've been on detail uh, with the Department of Energy. You are, if memory serves, the acting deputy Ass- assistant secretary. Yes, um, of electric right. delivery. Of of so electric basi- delivery. That is an yeah, awesome basically title. Basically, everything transmission. Perfect. And not R and D. Not R and D. Okay. I, I, I want to know more about R&D when it comes to transmission, but that's not what we're here to talk about. So um, I will have to have a follow-up. Exactly. Um, and that's my, that's my compadre <laughs> uh, over in my sister organization. So he and his managers love to talk about all that. I love it. Um, well, it's fun stuff, uh, mm-hmm. as, it as we know. Now, looking back at news, uh, news releases at the time, um, you would be, uh, I believe you're going to be helping to lead DOE's focus on national transmission infrastructure policy issues in support of our national clean energy objectives. Um, now, inquiring minds want to know, um, and, and we want to know as well, um, how goes the good fight? Um, what does the recent passage of the Infrastructure Investment and Job Act mean for your assignment? So means a lot. Means we go faster, or we where people expect us to go faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those in the transmission world, um, they're not known to go particularly fast. And so, um, so I think it's for me. I came over to DOE. They reorganized, and I'm standing up this group. So I've uh, stolen some great uh, planning engineers as well as project managers. I'm still in the midst of stealing people. Um, and uh, in order to help stand this up. Mm. The cool thing is uh, we're starting from the basics. We're starting from working with uh, the planning utilities or the the planning organizations for utilities or ISOs, RTOs, or, you know, whoever it be. And um, the goal, we have two goals, basically. The first is to really um, have the two labs that we're working with, NREL and um, PNNL, and have those two kind of combine some of their modeling skills and help us model and look at um, the national transmission grid. As you know, um, uh, FERC and Order 1000 and all that was, well, it's had a little about, you know, inter-region, but it was really about your region. So everybody's been doing a very good job with their region and planning, but in order to hit the new uh, kind of administration goals, as well as some old goals for states, I mean, California is, you call, has, you know, started this 10 years ago and really looking at a clean electric industry by 2035. Now, when you first say that, people are like, there's, you know, some people are like, there's no way you're going to hit it. And others are like, oh, easy peasy. Um, And so what we do is we come as a neutral third party, um, but we actually provide the skills of the labs. We provide the funding. We provide the convening. And um, so this first this first phase is really working with those two labs working with all the regions um, to really look at scenario-based planning, especially Mm. across regions. And so it's those SEAMS issues. Um, I believe NREL put out a SEAM study a few years ago that was, but it's dated now. So we're starting with some of that base uh, data anyways. We're not starting new, Um, taking everything that's been done and uh, really test it with the industry and test it with utilities. And so this is not one where we're going to come out and go, ta-da, this is one where we're going to put scenarios out and talk to a bunch of people and then run some models and put those out and stress test them. And so it really is um, helping provide a tool for the industry as well, you know, as well as states, as well, you know, the either the governor's offices or the PUCs or whomever to help with modeling scenarios. Because because in the end of the day, the states drive the residential, or, you know, the, yep. the PUCs 
drive the residential rates. Um, and I know I'm talking about public power, and so maybe it's your your city, if you're Seattle City Light, or your co-op, or your uh, if you're a municipal kind of that the town. But um, we're trying to provide that visibility and uh, that modeling capability for folks to use. And um, so for me personally, and well, personally and uh, professionally, what we're looking for are where we can, DOE can help partner with, whether it be states or send some federal money or things like that, where there's the, the big, big bang for your bucks, whether it's, it's connecting regions, whether it's um, helping with, as well as upgrading infrastructure. As you said, there was uh, there's some money that came out of the infrastructure bill for grid resiliency. And if you look at everything it hits, I call it, it's everything in the kitchen sink except for two things because they're in separate bills. Uh, it doesn't do transmission um, uh, uh, expansion. So mm -hmm. it's not new builds and it's not cyber because those have their own bills and their own money. And so basically it's, it's really trying to invest in the current infrastructure as well as the new, uh, the new builds. And so that is where we're we're really focusing. But we start with tools. We start with visibility. We start with uh, 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 modeling tools that can help people see what will ha happen if they make policy decisions or if they, uh -huh. you know, make investments here. And you can run not only the production cost modeling or the capacity expansion, but we're marrying that up with power flows. So one of the things that uh, the big mantra is it has to be electrically viable. And a lot of times we do one without the other. And so we are really trying to do number of scenarios in kind of the traditional where you see coming out of the labs, that higher level, and then marry it with PNNL's experience and having them push through with the power flow study with it. And so that's where we're starting with the basics. My group is planning. It sounds totally basic. And technical <laughs> assistance. We're starting with uh, kind of the basics, and really, this has to be industry. We want to model what industry's seeing. We want to uh, do that, and so this really is a different approach than what we've done before because it really is coming alongside to build a tool that we hope is going to be ongoing care and feeding that can be used um, by folks across the country. A follow-up question, if I may, you'd mentioned uh, uh, show the impacts if you make a given policy decision or uh, a given investment. In your estimation, what is what is the split there? What is the when it comes to, for example, interregional transmission, as you said, right. um, what is the split if we're looking at the impacts of, of policy or potentially even governance shifts um, versus, you know, spend a bunch of money on on steel in the ground? Um, yeah. So through the infrastructure, the steel in the ground got the majority of the money already. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, as I recall, there's $5 billion for um, upgrading your current infrastructure. Half of that goes to uh, cities and tribes and small utilities, the other half for the bigger utilities. Um, and then there's states. There's a whole, so that's about $5 billion. There's another $5 billion that are states and tribes and small utilities. And so, and that's a lot of that for technical assistance and then the actual uh, upgrades. And so that money is going to be used for the technical assistance or whatever they need up front. And then later on the actual uh, whatever widget or whatever they're putting on their, yep. their line. Um, and so I'd say the majority of that, there was two and a half billion that was designated called the transmission facilitation program that actually came out of the Pacific Northwest. And um, so that is one that, uh, that, that provides 
uh, two funding sources. You can either do a loan program um, through it, or you can have actually DOE invest in the, the project itself. So they're a funder. They're like a, another transmission provider. They own the capacity and then um, DOE will, will uh, do an RFP and have whoever's oasis in that area um, yep. have them administer it short term and long term. And so the goal is we invest in some, some lines that are really needed, but they don't have quite the full subscription yet because you either don't have the wind farm on the other end. And so we're that stopgap that um, invests in those uh, lines that uh, that that are close to there, but not quite there, um, invest in those. And then when it becomes uh, commercially viable and things are going, we sell, we just post it on Oasis for long-term sale, short-term and long-term. And uh, so that's, a, and then when it's commercially viable, someone else can buy it. Finally, a solution a for Montana wind. I love it. Exactly. That's a two and a half billion revolving fund. So that's one of the few things that came out of the infrastructure bill that is ongoing. It's now a new program. It goes on past the five years. Um, and so, yeah, most of you will say it's only two and a half billion and you can spend that, you know, like that. So it'll probably be very strategic. I'm guessing four or five projects uh, uh, just to get it going. But but that is one that builds on itself. And so when it is viable, it refund, you know, it kind of replenishes the the, um, the the coffers, I guess it is, the revolving fund borrowing authority, mm-hmm. I think, as we, we are know it well, and uh, replenishes that borrowing authority and uh, keeps going there. I love it. I found it. I found it. We have this Perfect. great uh, summary that we'll talk more about. And it's uh, it's like section 4106. And they refer to it, the uh, summarizer, yes. as an anchor tenant. You get to be the exactly. anchor tenant. That's a great it word for it. I have a bunch of follow-up questions, but we should probably uh, transition because I want to go okay. deeper on this alone. Agreed. Yeah. Michelle, do you mind you, you mind are, sticking around yeah. for, uh, for a bit of a longer conversation? Let's Let's go. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, great. We'll be back. Uh, we'll be back with more. Okay. We had a great conversation with Michelle. We talked a lot more about a lot more that could fit into the episode. We got deep into the Investment Infrastructure and Jobs Act. We also uh, got uh, got to talk a little bit, I think unsurprising to Friends of the Underground, about charging speed fees, in which Michelle agreed with me. Okay. Take that, Scott Co. Michelle agrees with me on charging speed fees. Take that. And and seasonal time change as the ostrich wing of energy policy to quote Scott Corwin. We also got into that. Talked a, a little bit about what's going on with Senator Patty Murray's plan on converting possibly some Department of Transportation leeways so we can go to permanent mountain standard time, which is the same as permanent daylight standards. It's great stuff. We talked about it in there. Also, we got into a lot of the other infrastructure investment jobs act. We'll publish the rest next week in a bonus episode. That sound good? You like that, Brian? I'm excited. Yeah, I'm going to definitely listen to that at 1x. Oh. That's how excited I am. Oh, oh. I I really am honored, Brian. I'm greatly honored. Yep. (laughs) Greatly honored. (laughs) Yeah. All hey, right. Hey, Paul. Oh, um, yeah. Michelle Maneri is great. And I just think her opportunity to work at the Department of Energy is really good for public power. So good for BPA, good for public power. She's there in D.C. and um, we get a lot of good information from her. Yeah. So what she's working on is this like transmission study where she's talking with these transmission experts from all the regions across the United States. 
and the ability to like learn best practices from these other transmission we get into it a little bit in the in the interview like the ability to learn from these other transmission planner organizations and bring best practices to the northwest incredibly valuable she also pointed out you know how valuable it is to know how the federal government works and bring that back to the Northwest is also great. It was a great interview and a great point, Crystal, that it's really invaluable that she's you know, on assignment. Okay, well, uh, we will uh, transition out of this. Luigi, you want to hit the typewriter one more time? Up next is the evolving segment where we go over news stories that we could, couldn't talk about or didn't have time to talk about on Public Power Desktop. This week, we're calling it Keep It Short. But before we do, let's take a short break for a word from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by the returning sponsor, Efficiency Services Group. That that must mean they like our vibe, and that means they're electric utility enthusiasts like us, and we appreciate their help in making this show possible. ESG specializes in working with electric utilities to develop real solutions to meet their specific needs. Glasgow IPUD uses ESG for our energy efficiency needs, so this can be a first-person testimonial testimonial. ESG is great. If you want to know more, ask Brian or visit efficiencyservicesgroup.com. That's efficiencyservicesgroup.com. They're a returning sponsor of Public Power Underground and they're electric utility enthusiasts like us. And experts in the energy efficiency field. So thank you, Paul. Now, keep it short. Okay. You ready, Crystal? I'm ready. This is Keep It Short, where we TLDR our way through some news leads. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Crystal Ball. And, and we're, we're keeping, it, keeping short. it short. Oh, it's great. <laughs> we're going to get better at that, Crystal. It's going to be perfect. And Northwest Fish Topics, after providing more than two decades of analysis on salmon and steelhead survival data in the Columbia Basin, an annual Fish Passion Center report could be a more useful tool for the Northwest Power and Conservation Council, BPA, and other fish managers if hydro system impacts were spelled out and communicated, a review by the Independent Scientific Advisory Board says. And salmon advocates gathered in six Northwest cities on November 20th to mark the 30th anniversary of the initial listing of salmon species as endangered. In news from the region, BPA will hold a public meeting November 30th to consider Clark Public Utilities' request to partially discontinue the use of its river road generating plant, a 248-megawatt natural gas-fired combined cycle combustion turbine within Clark's service territory near Vancouver, Washington. Under the Northwest Power Act, Clark, a net requirements Bonneville customer, must use the resources 225. 25 average megawatts of output towards serving its retail load for energy and the plant's 248 megawatts of nameplate output for its peak needs. Under its contract with Bonneville, the balance of Clark's requirements are met by Bonneville resources. Clark says that this continued use of the plant conflict conflicts with the state's Clean Energy Transformation Act, which requires it to serve the load with carbon-neutral resources starting in 2030 and be greenhouse gas-free by 2045. I realized as I was reading this that you're going to hear about this after the public meeting. So the public meeting happened in the past on November 30th when you're hearing this. And Microsoft's data center in Quincy, Washington, will be the site of a three-year demonstration project to test large-format hydrogen fuel cells as a sustainable backup power source. The project is supported and partially funded by the U.S. Department of Energy under the H2 at Scale initiative and backed by the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Ballard Power, based in Vancouver, British Columbia, will provide its 1.5 megawatt clean gen 2 hydrogen fuel cell power generator for the demo. 
And despite ongoing transmission pipeline outages across the Western U.S., natural gas prices dropped, some by more than $1, in a shortened trading week with markets closing in observance of the Thanksgiving holiday. Next, news from the Potomac. The Biden administration on November 23rd said 50 million barrels of oil will be released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in a bid to drive down fuel prices. In a briefing, senior administration officials said 32 million barrels will be released through an exchange with oil companies for later return under the expectation that prices will eventually slide lower. An additional 18 million barrels will be sold, according to administration officials who spoke under press briefing ground rules that they would not be named. And BPA's fiscal year 2021 brought positive results across the board quote-unquote, that included triggering a reserve distribution clause for power services in the amount of $13.7 million. And Minister John Harrison said, and $398 million of net agency revenues that blasted past the BP-20 rate case estimate of $38 million. Speaking November 23rd at Bonneville's quarterly business review, Harrison said that he would propose using the RDC funds to lower fiscal year 2022 power rates with a final decision issued by December 15th after reviewing customer and stakeholder feedback. That's as much short as we can carry this week. Thanks to our production partners, News Data, for letting us use their leads and our own Genesis Apprentices and linguist extraordinaire Ian Bledsoe for compiling the summaries. Now back to the crew to close out the episode. I'm liking keep it short. I, I that's where I'm at right now. So, oh, more than short to ground. Where are you at on that, Luigi? Short to ground. Keep it short. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. I think keep I it like short. Both. Really short to good. ground. I like keep it short. Yeah, keep it short. That's what, that's what I tell our staff writers every editorial <laughs> meeting. Nice. That's good. <laughs> that's short. good. That's good content right there. Okay, that's all the news we're covering this week. Send any news, questions, opinions, or corrections to Paul on Twitter, at a power manager. Or if you're a friend of the underground, send any of us a note. Thanks for joining us, Crystal. Thanks, Luigi. Thanks, Paul. And thanks for coming back, Jason. You're all valued and appreciated. Thank you, Brian. You are too. You're valued and appreciated too, Brian. Thank you, Paul. You're welcome. (laughs) It's the holiday season. And speaking of, our holiday special is being recorded December 13th, 2021, and published December 16th. Paul is really excited about the cast, which includes a returning co-star appearance by Crystal Ball. Woo! That's it. That's you, Crystal. Mark Orenshaw as our News Data podcast ambassador and super special... Mark's listening to this. All right. He's going to be so good on there. Mark's, you're going to be so good, Mark. And super special guests, Russ Mantefell from BPA and Emeka Anyanwu from Seattle City Light. It's going to be so good, Chris. Let's get a good lineup, it's isn't great. it? It's great. I'm so excited to do this. Russ is going to be so much fun. He is so fun. He's going to be so fun. <laughs> we'll also have surprise musical guests from uh, performing energy theme carols. To make sure you don't miss it or the bonus episode with the rest of the interview with Michelle Maneri, you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast app. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data to get this podcast, but it sure makes our podcast make a lot more sense. That's, That's right. all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We start.
started and hard times to bring us all in into the Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, News Data, or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiasts, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch! <laughs>